Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by David Weirs, the president and founder of Satori Energy based out of Chicago. Satori Energy has won awards for navigating the energy market and bringing value to its clients. David is also on the board of trustees at Carthage College in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He has decades of experience helping businesses maximize their energy usage while also being a leader in higher ed. So welcome, David. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. I think it's a really relevant one. The U.S. Department of Energy states that higher ed buildings accounts for about 5 billion square feet of floor space. That's a lot of floor space. And we know that energy costs are one of the top expenses for campus facilities. So I can't wait to dive in and really pick your brain about some of these topics. But let's start with a market recap and some historical context, maybe for our listeners who just need a refresher or to get up to speed on this. So tell us a bit about how energy became such a hot button issue. Thanks, Sarah. Certainly will. There's been unprecedented volatility in the energy markets over the past three and a half years. This volatility, paired with the ESG movement, has really elevated the energy discussion in most organizations. And higher ed is no different. Energy is now on the radar for most businesses and most institutions as well. It's important to point out to your listeners that there are really two main categories that energy falls into. And this applies to both colleges and universities as well. Those that are in deregulated states in those that are in regulated states. And there is a history lesson here. Do you remember a company named Enron? I do. Yes, most people will as well. Fortune magazine voted Enron the most innovative company from 1996 to 2001. And I think most people would remember that Enron went through a legendary unraveling in 2001. If you or your listeners have not read the book or seen the movie, Smartest Guys in the Room, it really provides an interesting perspective. For all the horrific things that occurred at Enron, there were actually some really good outcomes. Enron petitioned individual states to deregulate to allow customers to have choice in selecting their electricity provider. Enron publicly lobbied that there would be two main benefits. One, increased competition, which would drive prices down. And two, customers would have choice, which would lead to more innovation in the market. Again, notwithstanding any of the nefarious things that occurred at Enron, those states that decided to pass this deregulation legislation did see lower prices, and they have more choice. Currently, there are 17 states and the District of Columbia that have some variation of choice for ratepayers. So, for instance, we assist Lake Forest College in Illinois and Schenectady County Community College in New York with their energy procurement processes since they have the ability to select their suppliers. Whereas Carthage College in Wisconsin and St. John's in Minnesota are forced to purchase from the incumbent local utility. 
great use of the word nefarious, first of all. And second, and secondly, it sounds like there was actually a silver lining to Enron, which I didn't realize it traced all the way back to that. So that's my fault for not knowing. So the silver lining is that some states can now have more choice in their energy. Is that what I'm understanding? That's exactly correct. They can have that choice and they can actually take a proactive way to manage their electricity where the states that are still under a regulated environment can't really choose the rate structure that they have. They may have some small ability to choose a rate structure, but they can't move from the incumbent supplier. Do you think that will change in the future? Will more and more states become deregulated and have more choice? It's a great question. There has not been any significant movement recently, mostly because Enron was spending millions of dollars to try to lobby these legislative representatives. There has been some talk about Arizona, but that really hasn't moved forward. So we're just waiting for it to play out. We don't really know either way. That's correct. All right. So understanding those two variations, what are some of the influences, particularly the main influences on energy prices? Energy costs are usually the third or fourth highest operating cost for most institutions. And that being said, the landscape is slightly different for those in regulated versus deregulated states. So we'll first start with regulated where prices are fixed and the utility there earns a regulated return on their investment. So the real opportunity for institutions are with low-cost energy efficiency upgrades or basically using less energy. There may be opportunities with installing solar on campuses as well. The Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed in 2022, paves the way for nonprofits to be able to take full advantage of the solar tax incentives. We can discuss this later if there's time. For higher education institutions in deregulated states, prices are more volatile and it is imperative to manage these costs appropriately. For instance, when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2020, much of Europe depended on Russia for natural gas, which is the fuel used mostly to generate electricity. So the demand for U.S. liquefied natural gas increased dramatically, thus increasing the cost of electricity in the U.S. I have a chart that you can include in the show notes that demonstrates the 86% increase in the cost of natural gas over a six-month period from January of 22 to June of 22. 86%. That's really volatile, right? That's atypical. What would be a typical, what's a typical percentage or range? Because it is an active commodity that's traded like a stock or bond, we could see price movements anywhere from 10 to 20, sometimes 30%. But 86% was certainly higher than expected and higher than we've seen in the past. Is there a way to look forward and forecast anticipated energy costs for campuses in the upcoming year? Is that possible? And are there regional differences? So would the Midwest be different than the East Coast or the West Coast? There's definitely regional differences in the costs of, of electricity. And there is a way to anticipate potential costs and anticipated costs for campuses for colleges, universities, and businesses as well. I'll say that this is really more of an art versus a science, since there are many variables that go into it. But in summary, we try to use the price times quantity equals total cost formula. Price is based on many variables, including fuel mix and geographic constraints. So prices are higher in the Northeast and California versus the Midwest. We have clients with contract rates that are over 11 cents per kilowatt hour in parts of the Northeast in California, whereas some clients in Illinois and Texas have contract rates in the three to four cent per kilowatt hour range. Those clients that choose to float on the market are exposed to index market conditions. 
So some months their cost may be in the five cent per kilowatt hour range. And some months like this month, August of 23, parts of Texas have averaged over 19 cents per kilowatt hour. So there is a lot of volatility in the price. When we look at quantity, weather patterns certainly affect energy consumption. So we usually budget for clients based on historical data and then adjust for any changes, whether that be new buildings, new accounts, renovation, energy upgrades, or other projects. And as you know, always better to be under budget, so we usually use a small risk tolerance contingency as well. Dave, do you find that when you're working with your clients, are they being more intentionally responsible about addressing energy consumption, particularly folding those into their strategic plans? Are they being a little bit more ESG forward in your estimation? Yes, absolutely. There's been a lot of focus on on ESG, and my team knows that I tend to over, oversimplify things, but there are really two overarching groupings of businesses and institutions regarding this topic. One, those complying with the mandate. Clearly, this is mandatory. Human nature is to complete the least amount of work possible while achieving compliance. And two, those businesses or organizations or institutions with voluntary compliance. These are making a statement and will likely market accordingly. So there's lots of different ways that institutions or organizations can look at how do we get started. Dave, tell us about that first logical steps that an organization could take if they were looking forward and saying, all right, we really want to be more responsible about energy consumption. Where would you recommend they start? That's a great question, Sarah. Peter Drucker said, you can't manage what you don't measure. So the first step for any organization is really establishing a baseline. There are many firms that can help clients complete this step because we know it's hard to start something that you've never done before. Next, setting SMART goals is a very important step. Then developing a plan to evaluate projects, processes, and other methods to improve performance and ideally achieve these targets. Interestingly enough, Clients with customers in Europe are being asked about ESG goals more regularly, and customers here are having to adjust accordingly. More trustees and regents are dealing with these types of plans in their private sector experiences, so ESG plans are also trickling into the higher ed sector. There may be pressure from internal stakeholders, like faculty, staff, and students, to develop net zero emission plans or renewable procurement strategies. It is important to revisit these goals progress, and actions on a periodic basis. And this timeline is something that can work separately for each organization. So it was interesting that you were talking about how Europe is an influence on what's happening in the states. And then you also mentioned that there's kind of some United States federal regulations. Are there other additional compliance measures that we will be asked to take in the future regarding energy consumption? Yes, that's a great question, Sarah. Certain states have enacted net zero emissions legislation, and actually our U.S. government has committed to reach net zero emissions by 2050. So I would like to state that this is very good legislation for the environment, but it ultimately increases the cost for consumers. As we retire coal plants and natural gas plants, which produce low-cost power, and replace them with renewable resources like wind, hydro, and solar, the average unit cost of production will increase and this will be passed on to consumers. So it's an inverse relationship. The more we go green, the higher the total cost for consumers. These cost increases will affect higher ed, commercial and industrial customers, 
residential customers in both regulated and deregulated states. And it's worth noting that some colleges and universities within certain jurisdictions are required by municipalities to reduce their carbon footprint, such as Boston University, because the city of Boston has passed a specific ordinance and other institutions in Cambridge, Massachusetts as well. Are you able to quantify how much more this is going to cost us to go green? Because I think so many of us out there want to be more sustainable. We are thinking about our environment and how to be better at all of this. And yet if it costs more, that does become a deterrent. So are you able to quantify us for us? Is it a percentage or tell us about the actual cost for us? Yeah, lots of customers want to go green, but no one wants to pay for it. And so there, there are some solutions out there from purchasing renewable energy credits, which might be a very small cost component within the total bill. It's hard to quantify for, it's hard to quantify across the board because based on where customers are located, where universities and colleges are, are located, there will be different costs associated with that, but probably somewhere between five to 20% in, in terms of going green and going green could be different for different people. You could buy national wind wrecks, which are a certain cost. Or if you're in upstate New York and buying New York-specific renewable energy credits, that will have a different cost. Okay, so planning sounds like a big part of managing these costs. And would you recommend that higher ed, you know, campus planners, facility managers, they start looking at this now, even though 2050 seems like a long ways away? Is it advantageous to start now? I think it is advantageous to have an idea of what is coming down the pipeline. We know that colleges and universities and administrators and facility planners, they're busy with lots of different tasks and items on their plate. But certainly this is something that's coming and all colleges and universities will need to comply within their jurisdiction. So certainly reaching out to consultants, looking at different options, that's certainly worth doing at this point. All right, let's Go tactical here. We're talking about costs for higher ed, particularly facilities. Consider the type of college that's looking to start a new building. They want a big, new, shiny building to support their academic or extracurricular goals. What are their specific options? What do they have in front of them that they could save money on and be more environmentally friendly? Yeah, great question, Sarah. As I alluded to before, The Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed in 2022, has created significant opportunities for those institutions that have renewable energy goals to become more green. Again, there are significant artificial incentives to make renewables more affordable and entice more customers to install solar. So for any new building, evaluating solar certainly makes sense, especially in Illinois where some geographic areas qualify for a 40 to 50% investment tax credit in year one, plus additional state and utility incentives. There are solutions for nonprofits to monetize these tax credits since most colleges and universities do not pay federal income tax. Additionally, there are energy efficient building envelope strategies that makes sense to evaluate. Well, I really like this idea. You make me feel a little bit better because I was getting nervous about those five to 25% increase in costs. And now you're saying, okay, but if you plan right and you have this available in your area, you can actually get some of this money back. So you're going to recoup it. And it's not completely just money 
extra, it is also going to be brought back to you. Okay, tell me about significant remodels. So what are the options if you have an older building, but maybe you're gutting it and you're redoing all the HVAC and some of the utilities? Tell us about that. What are the options? Well, there's certainly some some options if you are redoing the HVAC, looking at energy efficient equipment to install. And if there is a new roof going on an existing building, that's a perfect time to evaluate solar as well. Part of the incentives require that the system remain in service for 15 to 20 years, and most panels are warranted for 20 to 25 years. So the age of the roof really matters. Eureka College in central Illinois installed solar on the roof of their student center. And this particular solar array produces over half of the energy needs for the building. Additionally, students and faculty can see what the system is producing in real time on a dashboard display in the facilities lobby. This really raises awareness for the next generation and will help move forward that heavy lift of net zero by 2050. I have personally visited that Eureka campus and Straight Up Solar was the vendor that completed this project. I must say they did a tremendous job. I can provide a link in the show notes as well as a fantastically candid photo of me with the solar panels on the roof. Wait, you're in the solar panels? You're standing on top of the solar panels? Give us a visual in case we don't actually get to see this photo in real life. I I want you to paint the picture for us. I'm standing on the roof showing off the solar panels. Like Vanna White style? I wish I could do it like Vanna White. For more rural campus settings with access to open land, ground mount solar systems are a good option. The trustees at Rend Lake College in Jefferson County, Illinois, voted to install a solar system in a vacant parcel of land adjacent to the campus. One of our subsidiary companies, Affordable Gas and Electric, assisted in the design and bidding of that system for Ren Lake College. Most brick-and-mortar schools and programs operate on a semester or a trimester academic calendar, and so often the summer months are relatively empty. So we have these big, beautiful facilities, but hardly anyone uses them in summer times. Even some winter breaks can be extended. And yet we still have to climate control them, right? We have to use HVAC and electricity. What's your position on the typical academic calendar being a form of energy consumption and maybe even waste? This is an issue, Sarah, that practically all colleges and universities face. There are fixed plant resources, yet the physical plant is mostly being utilized over a nine-month period. As you stated, there continues to be cost implications for each institution. So certainly, being cognizant of consumption during downtime is important. Many utilities charge a demand charge, which is based on the highest peak usage throughout the year. But this demand charge is levied monthly. So some some of your listeners may think this demand charge sounds like a penalty, but the utility must be prepared to serve each customer at its peak demand throughout the year. Colleges and universities must manage their demand. However, I believe the real opportunity here goes beyond energy, must be focused on using the physical plant to its highest and best use. And what this means is different for various institutions. Some may have summer school courses with students on campus. Some colleges and universities may have summer camps and utilize those for younger children. Or some may provide a setting for corporate business retreats. There's many different outcomes here, but I think the answer is better utilization and planning for each specific institution. That's a conversation I've had many times in 22 years of higher ed is how can we have all these beautiful facilities when really they're 
often only operating fully nine months of the year, maybe 10 months max. And so I like your suggestions of how are we going to use it in summer, whether it's conferences or camps or summer schools or yeah, because otherwise it just it does feel kind of wasteful to walk through these ghost town campuses in the middle of summer. You're exactly right. All right, let's widen out our scope and conversation. And let's talk about when you work with clients and you sit down with them and you're having first preliminary discussions, what are some of the biggest challenges that come your way through these clients? What are you seeing in relation to high energy costs? Where do you see waste, poor planning? Tell us about that. Yeah, there are a lot of clients that come to us and maybe have some idea of what they're trying to solve and some maybe don't really know what they're trying to solve for. So it's different on a client by client basis. But I would say one situation that comes to mind and we've seen time and time again is when someone in an institution or an organization is tasked with managing energy, but it's only five to 15% of their overall job description. It is extremely difficult to be an expert at anything, only spending five to 15% of your time at it. Some of your listeners are likely familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule, that it really takes 10,000 hours of repetitions to truly become an expert in a specific field. Since our team focuses on energy all day, every day, we do create significant high level value for those types of situations. I agree. There is hardly any campuses I know of that have a fully dedicated full-time staff person who works on just energy management. So, but I mean, that just seems like a big budget item, right? For human capital. But you're suggesting that maybe for some campuses it's actually needed. And if they can't afford, that's when the consultants come in and do their job. That's exactly right. And even those larger institutions that may have someone on staff full time, they may not be an expert in every demand side of the business and supply side of the business. Maybe they have a history or they have experience doing demand side audits. That's great. They can focus on that. They may still need to build bring in a consultant to help them with the supply side or procurement. I remember growing up and I would get quite a lot of not so friendly reminders to turn off the lights when leaving a room and under no circumstances could I ever, ever open a door if the air conditioning was running. Now, I'm not sure how we're supposed to get outside, but you could not do it because then you are heating the outside and wasting money. And I don't think my parents were really energy conscious so much as frugal. You have three kids, David. What do you yell at them to stop doing in your own house? So tell us how you manage energy in your own home. Well, you're right. We do have this in common, Sarah, probably growing up in Wisconsin. I think I said yesterday, close the door. We're not cooling the outside. I do have three children, as you know, and they know I'm in the energy business, but I'm not sure they really know what that means. I certainly try to use gentle reminders because sometimes it takes five or 10 or 20 times for something to sink in, but they are not focused on reducing energy. They flip the switch and the light turns on, and we are all fortunate to live in an environment whereby this is the norm. All right. So you also sit on the board of trustees at Carthage, as I mentioned earlier. So you're well aware of how the higher ed landscape is shifting, I mean, really week by week. It's also volatile, like the energy market. There's been a handful of institutions that have announced closures over the past few months. 
Are there any parallels that you can think of and draw between what you do and the higher ed landscape in terms of changing and new business models? So, you know, tell us about where you see those parallels and what advice you would have for some higher ed leaders that might be listening and kind of interested in your perspective. Well, you are certainly correct. There's no doubt that the landscape in higher ed is changing. Net tuition revenue has been decreasing for almost all institutions, and there are less graduating high school students. I've listened to some of your other episodes, and I'm definitely familiar with the upcoming enrollment cliff. These changes are not completely unlike the changes that have occurred in the energy industry. For hundreds of years in energy, there was a way of doing things, monopolies. And then with the advent of deregulation, the environment changed, and the large utility players in the energy industry we're forced to adjust and become more customer-centric. This is also occurring in higher ed. Not all college-age individuals want to attend school the way that many of their parents did, or we did for that matter. There are more students working while attending classes. Some want to work full-time and attend classes at night. Some want to live at home, or others want to go to a community college for two years and then transfer to a larger school. The bottom line is that higher ed institutions must listen to their customers, both students and parents alike, to determine if their product offering in the marketplace is still relevant. And if not, these institutions will need to adjust or the institutions themselves will become irrelevant. Yeah, so I'm hearing a focus on customer market demands and making sure that those needs are satisfied first and foremost. Absolutely right. All right. Well, I am sure that some listeners are going to want to reach out to you and learn more about what you can do and what Satori Energy does. And so I will be sure to include your contact information in our show notes, as well as some of the other information that you had mentioned during our episode. David, thank you so much for being here today. It was really interesting to hear more about how campuses can become more energy aware. Sarah, I really appreciate you having me on your podcast. I'm both thankful and grateful for the opportunity. Your podcast is one of those that helps lift the collective whole. I always tell my team in any endeavor, you should always look to take away one or two nuggets of information to utilize going forward. So I truly hope that your listeners have found a few tangible takeaways from this session. Thank you. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.